Welcome. You're listening to The Aligned Self, conversations in creating a conscious and abundant life. This is Daniel DeNovi. I'll be your guide and host. Let's see just where we can take this. Hello, friend, and welcome to part two of Mastering Your Emotions, Shadow Beliefs, Resolving Shadow Beliefs. Now, if you haven't yet listened to part one of this two-part series, go back and listen to part one, because this isn't going to make much sense unless you listen to the first part, because this episode picks up right in the middle of a story. So without any delay, here you go. And in that relationship, I took it to mean that I was not lovable enough. I wasn't good enough. And then I wondered, was it in the relationship before that one? And it was. In some way, some theme, that theme or that idea was running through the tapestry of all my relationships, all the way back to my teen years. And it was there I found the ending of my first big relationship, the one that I was really invested in, the one that I was totally, my heart was right there. And she ended it. She didn't want to be together anymore. She didn't want me in her life anymore. I was left feeling from that. It's true. I'm not enough. And that, I didn't say those words, but that's definitely how I felt. And then I wondered, did it occur any earlier than that? And I traced it back to when I was eight years old. I was in the third grade. And I remembered a story that I would often tell and often tell with a bit of humor. But I realized underneath the humor, I was hiding the little pain in my heart, like a little arrow was shot through my heart. And I was wounded in that event. And what happened is one day, I decided to write a love note to Janie. I'm going to change all the names in this. So I write a love note to Janie. I say, Dear Janie, do you love me? Circle yes, circle no. Love, Dan. And I folded it up and I handed it to Mike. And, and Mike looked at me like, what? I said, back to Janie. And he turned around and handed Frank. And Frank's like, what's this? And he says, give it to Janie. He, and Frank turns around and gives it to Janie and points over to me. You know, it's from him. And she opens it up and looks at it. And then she has this look of consternation in her face. Like, what the hell is this? And suddenly, something I was all proud of, uh, suddenly I was fearful of. And she folded it in half, got up out of her little desk, and walked straight up to the teacher. And my eyes are like wondering, what the hell's going on? And she sticks her hands out and just presents it to the teacher. And the teacher's grading papers, and she doesn't notice it at first. And then she goes, huh, what's this? And then she takes the note and turns and points to me. And the teacher reads it and then has this big, <sighs> pushes her chair back, stands up. And she looked tall to me. You know, I was eight years old. And she was towering over me, telling me how inappropriate a letter like this was that I should not be expressing my feelings in this way to other people. And I felt about two inches tall. And also, at this point, every kid in the class was looking at me. And I realized in that moment, I made some assessments of the situation, some assessments about me and love. I can love you, but I can't trust you. You'll betray me. You'll betray my confidence. And I don't matter. I'm not enough. And then there was also the belief that I will not be understood. People just won't understand me. They don't understand where I'm coming from. I will be misperceived. Was it the truth? No. 
but I realized that this was the origin point for a lot of these feelings in my relationships. And virtually every argument, every hurt feeling that I had in those relationships throughout that time, throughout that 30-some years, underneath it was the confirmation of the belief that I was betrayed in some way. An agreement that we had was betrayed. Or that I perceived some action where they were not respecting me or they weren't valuing me. I was not enough. Well, I realized this assessment of my life and my relationship to other people, to women, was made at age eight. It wasn't necessarily the truth. I was also at this point in my life. I had been a coach for many years. I knew a lot about the mind. And so I used a neuro-linguistic programming technique of changed history. So in my mind's eye, my adult self went back to be with my eight-year-old. In the theater of my mind, I pulled the essence out of myself in that chair, and we stood and we watched the scene unfold in the classroom. Now, who can be with yourself better than you? Because you know exactly what you needed to hear. You knew what you needed to know at that moment that would have made a difference. So I have my arm around my little eight-year-old Danny, and I say, Danny, look at Janie. She just got the note. Look at her. She's eight. She's eight years old. She's never had a love note before. She doesn't know what to do with it. And it probably would have been helpful if you had at least talked to her once, just once, before you sent her the note. I mean, it's kind of heavy for an eight-year-old to take. Because she doesn't know what to do with it, what does she do? She takes it to the only authority in the classroom. And she walks it up and hands it to Mrs. Johnson. Now, look at Mrs. Johnson. You were born in 1960. This is 1968. Mrs. Johnson retired, I know this, three years after you left the third grade. So she's like in her early 60s. So that means she was born like 1906. And I could hear my little eight-year-old go, whoa. But yeah, 1906. And at that age, children were seen but not heard. They weren't even considered to have real feelings until they were a lot older. And that is why she said, it's inappropriate for you to express your feelings this way. I was too young in her eyes. And I told my little Danny, Danny, she doesn't understand. You're a lover. You love big. And Janie didn't send the note back, not because she didn't love you, not because you weren't important enough. She didn't know you. And let me tell you something else. You might like her today, but you're not even going to be attracted to her in any way, shape, or form in your high school years. You're not even going to be interested in her in the least. She's just not your type. But then again, let me tell you something else. Let me tell you about the women you do meet. And then I told him about the different relationships and how amazing it was and what he would learn. And get this, you're going to walk on burning hot coals. You're going to tour Europe with a symphony band and play to sold-out crowds, standing ovations. Plus, you'll go to over 25 different countries. I can't begin to tell you all the amazing things you're going to do. And I could feel my pride and my self-esteem rise in that conversation with my younger self. And then I completed that conversation by giving myself a virtual hug. So let me break down what I did. 
Basically, I went back in time. I was with my younger self in only the way I could be, my older self talking to my younger self. I was talking nicely. I was talking like a big brother. My tone was loving. My tone was accepting. And then in our conversation, I began to point out, like I didn't change the facts. The facts remained the same. I changed the interpretation. I pointed out some alternative perspectives uh, that invalidated that idea that I was not enough. Now, remember, a belief is something you feel fairly certain is true. It's a concept that you have a degree of certainty about. So by introducing doubt, by introducing alternative explanations, we weaken the strength of that argument. So it's basically unbuilding a belief or deconstructing a belief by doing the opposite of what you did to build it. So instead of collecting evidence to support my belief, I would start collecting evidence to invalidate that belief that I was not good enough. And by contrast, by looking for evidence where I was good enough, where I was lovable, where I could trust other people, especially when I was particular and communicated the agreement. See, that was key. I used to assume that people would just love me and keep some whatever hidden agreement or covert agreement I threw out there. And we'll do an episode on covert agreements or implied agreements, which lead to disappointment, let me tell you. So the components of that process that changed history, one we already talked about, that is seeking alternative perspectives that invalidate your original assessment of the situation. The more examples you can gather, the better. The other is you want to look at the players in the situation. Now, this does require a second position of perspective where you put yourself in somebody else's shoes and really think it through from their perspective. What are their beliefs about it? What are they trying to get? Or in other words, what need or want are they trying to fulfill? Because everyone operates from their own personal agenda. Let's say that it has nothing to do with you whatsoever. If you look at it completely from their point of view, what's their history with the situation? How are they interpreting it? What are the resources that they have to deal with you in that situation? And so in my example, that's when I said, look at Janie. She's eight. She's never talked to you. She doesn't know what to do with the note. Look at Mrs. Johnson. How old is she? What are, what's her history? What's her perception? What is she bringing to the table? And in that assessment, I have a whole new body of evidence to consider. And this is a good time to bring in how I think about this whole process, You want to think of yourself as a trial lawyer. And of course, a lawyer doesn't always prove the truth. You want to prove a position. Whatever you want to prove, you seek the evidence, you gather evidence and build a case to strengthen your position that you're bringing to the table or into court. And you do want your case, your presentation to be very persuasive. You want it to prove a point. So you're not just going to pick idle evidence, you're going to gather the best evidence as you can. Now, sometimes it's helpful to bring humor into the situation. I once had a woman who was a salesperson come to me and tell me that she had trouble asking for the sale because she had this belief that she didn't deserve it, like she had a deservability issue. And I paced her, I agreed with her and said, I'm sure you do have that belief, but it's not true. Do you deserve to stand where you are right now? You didn't ask me to stand there. You just walked up and you're standing there assuming you deserve to stand there. 
You didn't ask for permission. You just assumed that you deserve to walk around the room like you own it. And she replied, but we're having a conversation. You started the conversation. You invited me in. I said, yeah, but I didn't say you could stand there. You could have sat over there or you could have stood over there in a corner. And then she was looking at me as if I was totally stupid, which was the effect that I wanted. And I said, wherever you go, there you are. You deserve to be wherever you are. And I said, unless you have an agreement with somebody else already established or you're taking something from someone, you don't need permission. You just show up. You just do it. And I also noticed that she had a bracelet on WWJD. What would Jesus do? I pointed at the bracelet and I said, so what would Jesus do? Would he ask for permission? Would he have problems with deservability? Before he gave the Sermon on the Mount, did he ask anybody whether he could do it or not, whether it was okay? When he started preaching the Word of God, did he, you know, ask anybody, was he ordained? Did he get validated by any other authority? No, he was going by an inner authority, an inner conversation with the divine. It was just from his perspective. So anybody else could say, hey, you didn't deserve to be there. Well, he didn't really care. He was going to say what he had to say do what he had to do, regardless of what you thought. And then, so in the sales situation, I said, you booked the appointment, they invited you in, you made the presentation. You deserve the sale because you did the work. You answered all their objections. You presented the product in its best light. If it's a fit, then you deserve to get paid. She stood there for a moment and let it sink in. And she said, thank you. And then walked out the door And then she reported back to me. She started making sales just like that. People were giving her money. So, all right, let me talk a little more specifically about these shadow beliefs. I'm not enough. I don't matter. I'm not lovable. Understand that these are ill-formed linguistic statements, grammatically incorrect. So if we were to challenge them, it would be something like this. I'm not enough. I'm not enough what? In what context? In what situations? Are you always not enough? Do you walk out the door half-dressed because you don't complete the ensemble? In what areas, what situations are you not enough? How does it show up? I don't matter. You don't matter to who? You don't matter to anybody? You don't matter to yourself? In what context? What's the criteria? What would make you matter? If you were standing on the shore of a lake and you threw a stone in the water, would it cause ripples? It would matter, especially to the duck on the other side. It would make a difference. It would change the current. It would change the patterns. You make a difference just by showing up. If you bought a ticket to fly to Chicago and you're sitting in your seat on the plane and someone walks up and says, I want to sit where you are. You say, well, I bought a ticket. This is my seat. They couldn't sit there because... You matter. In fact, from the pilot's perspective, having passengers in the seat make a difference on the weight and balance of the aircraft. So you don't want everyone sitting on one side of the aircraft and no one sitting on the other side. Ideally, you balance it throughout the aircraft so it's easier to fly because where you sit matters. So we could even look at I'm not lovable and find exceptions to that. So these statements are not only grammatically incorrect, they're incomplete, because we can shoot holes through them by asking what and how and what context. But also, they're a generalized statement. And being a generalized statement, the moment we find one exception, 
you prove that it's no longer true. It's not universally true. And these generalized statements come up as a universal qualifier, such as always, never, every time. And people say these things such as, I never come out of top. It never works out for me. I always fail. I always get the short end of the stick. Always? Every time? Not one time did you come out on top? Not one time did you? You get the idea. The other aspect about these shadow beliefs that I want to discuss is that they occur typically as fixed in space and time. It's a fixed belief, meaning that it is part of the woodwork. It's part of your design. And so again, the moment we find an exception, the moment we find alternative perspectives that invalidate that belief, that that free it from being fixed, and just sometimes, sometimes we're not enough. Sometimes we don't have enough skills. Sometimes we don't have enough talent. Sometimes we don't have enough energy to show up. But it's not fixed and static across the board. It's dynamic and relevant only to a given situation. It's not true across the board. It's not universal in nature. And so if we were to create the opposite of I'm not enough, it would be something more dynamic, something that is a process that you can live into. For instance, I am committed to showing up to the best of my ability, of going the extra mile, of doing my homework, being prepared, so when opportunity shows up, I am prepared to meet it. So the idea in this is to create a series of behaviors, a series of steps that you can put in place, that you can take part in, that you can take action on, that invalidate the belief, obliterates the belief. And then in the context of the infinite game and the finite games, which I discussed in previous podcasts, you're going to win some and lose some, some of the time. It's just a matter of fact. You're not going to win them all. You're not going to lose them all either. And unless you give up, unless you stop playing, Like I've said before in previous episodes, there is no such thing as failure, only feedback. So unless you sit out, unless you stop and pack all your toys up and go home, you're going to play again. So you use the result of one game to inform your next approach. So you begin again, you change your approach, you use a new strategy, you can continually improve over time. So again, the context of being enough never comes up. You're always in the process of becoming. Well, this episode has given you the basic tools to dismantle these shadow beliefs, these limited ideas that you have about yourself. And uh, let me say this. Any emotional response that is less than magnificent has its roots in fear, has its roots in limitation. And there is always a better way to perceive it that works for you rather than against you. So if you have a situation that results in an unpleasant response, an unpleasant feeling, it begs a deeper question. It begs some inquiry on your part. Like, what am I making this mean about me? Now, this was only one approach. In NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, there's probably another half a dozen possibilities that we could have used. We could have used anchoring, collapsing anchors. We could have done submodality work and changed the perception, perspective of all those different situations. But in the example that I gave you, we utilized reframing and timeline therapy. Alternative approaches could have been uh, EMDR or uh, tapping, you know, pattern interrupt type deals, and potentially another three or four potentially effective approaches. What I'm saying is that there's many roads to Rome, and it's never a one size fits all. You can utilize this, 
put it into practice, entertain the idea, see if it works, see what kind of results you get. All we really want to do is weaken these beliefs and start creating a case for the opposite, that you are amazing, that you are valuable, that you are lovable beyond belief. So put this into practice. Tell me what your results are. Get back to me. Give me feedback. I would love to hear about it. So until next time, this is your friend and host, Daniel DeNovi, urging you to follow your bliss. Live your life from inner signals. And by all means, be in pursuit of the epic adventure. (laughs) 